Paleo Runner podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click ratings and reviews. You can also follow me on facebook.com slash runpaleo or on Twitter at runpaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates to use as a fuel source. Unlike sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream to give you sustained energy throughout your workout. If you'd like to give it a try, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is John Durant. John is author of The Paleo Manifesto, Ancient Wisdom for Lifelong Health. He studied evolutionary psychology at Harvard and founded Paleo NYC and Barefoot Runners NYC. He's been featured in the New York Times, the Colbert Report, and NPR. John, thanks so much for being part of the show. Great to be here, Aaron. John, it's it's great to have you on. I've really been enjoying reading your book. And the thing I liked about your book is that aside from other paleo books, you include a lot of the lifestyle of the paleo way of living. Um, tell me a little bit about how you got interested in paleo. Let's just start from there. Yeah, the um, in, in terms of the book and some of the lifestyle factors, I try to encourage people to think of uh, their life and everything in it as their habitat. And your habitat is uh, the food that you eat and how you move and the relationships that you have and the sun and your workplace and things like that. And, and when you start to view um, your life as a habitat, you think about one of the ways I encourage people, one of the things I encourage people to do in the book is to think about ways that they could tweak or change or alter their habitat to make it easier to thrive um, in a lot of different ways. So my, I mean, my, my background and my interest in this is a completely uh, ordinary story, unfortunately, because it's far too common. I was a year out of college at my first full-time desk job. Uh, it seemed like my metabolism slowed down in a big way. My energy was spiking and crashing. I was drinking too much alcohol, not getting enough sleep. Sort of the typical work hard, play hard uh, type of lifestyle that a lot of people have after college. And I just didn't feel very good. I mean, I put on something, yeah, I put on 20 pounds or something, but that really wasn't a big deal. I, I, I could sort of stand to gain 20 pounds. For me, it was more my energy was spiking and crashing, and it wasn't just my energy, it was my mood. I would sort of swing from optimistic to pessimistic over the course of a 12-inch meatball sub from <laughs> Subway. Um, and so I just wanted to feel healthier. I didn't really have... Um, I didn't. I, I, I didn't want to, you know, fit into a bikini for for swimsuit season or anything like that. Um, and I didn't want to do. I'd never been on a diet before. I don't like diets. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of women have very negative um, association with the, with diets because they've um, been more concerned with body image, and probably a lot of women have been been on diets that haven't really worked over the long term. And then a lot of men um, just haven't paid any attention to their health at all, um, and and sort of view diets as something that women do. Um, so there's a stigma around diets and. I, I just didn't want to count calories or any of that nonsense. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had studied some evolutionary psychology um, in college. And so when I came across an evolutionary approach, it just sort of clicked. I was like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. We should look at how we live in the wild, 
um, and integrate some of those lessons into modern life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the beginning, you mentioned that uh, a big part of why you wanted to try something different was your moods. Is that you had gone through a kind of a rough breakup, and you noticed that when you were getting more sunlight and sleeping better, your mood was just so much better. And you thought, you know, I wonder if there's a way that I could be up all the time as far as my mood goes and just feel good all the time. And well, uh, was, yeah, was that a big part of it as well? It, it was. I mean, I, I felt like a different person at, at different points in time. I, if I went through this breakup and I and I found that if I got eight hours of sleep and exercise, wasn't hungover and eating decently, things were fine. You know, it wasn't that big of a deal. Moving on. Uh, however, if I was hungover, had gotten six hours of sleep, uh, hadn't been working out and been eating a bunch of Chinese takeout, it was like my world was coming to an end. And it was so, I tried to step back from it and I just found it so strange that something as fundamental as who I am and and the relationships in my life could fluctuate so much based on my health. Um, It it really made me realize that the brain doesn't just uh, float in the ether completely independent from the rest of your body. I mean, the brain is part of your body. Um, It controls uh, hormones throughout the body. Um, Our... Everything is united. Mind and body are not separated; they're one. And uh, and and so when I, I I used to think that my my body was kind of my lack of health was dragging down my mind. Um, and then one day I, I sort of flipped that equation and realized that if I took control of my health, I could actually improve my my mental state. And mm-hmm. and that set me on the course to where I am today. Okay, you know I really like this analogy that you use in your book about uh, animals in captivity and this idea that each animal is adapted to its natural habitat. And t- you, you kind of make this analogy that humans living today are really outside of their natural habitat, and that if we really want to be vibrant and healthy, we might need to start looking at things different. Tell me a little bit more about um, what you found by looking at animals in the zoo. So a, a few years ago, this was, this was a really fun adventure to go on. A few years ago, I saw an article about two gorillas at the Cleveland Zoo and how the zookeepers had changed their diet from a bunch of uh, processed pet food bars called Gorilla Biscuits to a bunch of uh, leafy uh, plants and vegetables and stems and things like that. Um, and had gotten some really great health outcomes. So I thought, oh, cool, this is right in line with the type of stuff I'm thinking about. So I called up the zoo. I got in touch with the, uh, with the medical staff that was in charge of this experiment, and I asked them if I could just fly to Cleveland and hang around with them for a couple of days and learn about how they keep uh, animals and uh, captive animals healthy um, and learn more about this experiment. So I, I, I went down there. It was an amazing group of women, mostly, who were, uh, who were working on this project. Um, Elena Less uh, was a PhD student at the time, um, and she was writing her dissertation on adiposity and obesity in captive gorillas. See, see, (laughs) people go to the zoo and they look at the animals. What they don't often realize is that many of the animals are quite overweight, and they suffer from many of the same health problems that humans do. So uh, dental problems are rife in zoos. Um, different mental or psychological problems like pacing um, or lethargy or what appears to be depression, um, also uh, fairly common in zoos. Um, and, and, and so when I was speaking to them, they had a very simple approach.
approach for for improving the health of animals in captivity. And uh, step one, of course, is making sure that they don't die. And modern medical technology is very good at making sure that other animals or humans don't die, right? And, and mm-hmm. you, 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 you go into, um, most zoos can keep most species alive longer than they would in the wild these days. But that's mostly a factor of having enough food, um, not have, separating predators from prey, not having members of the same species uh, wound and fight each other, and not having it infectiously. So the next step after these animals are living a long time is you start to notice, they start to notice all these chronic health problems, just like a lot of the chronic health problems that humans have today. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was shocked when I learned this. Heart disease is the number one killer of male gorillas in captivity. Uh, It also happens to be (laughs) the number one killer of human males in civilization. Um, The types of heart disease are a little bit different, so it's not uh, directly analogous. or entirely analogous, uh, but um, the, they basically, a lot of zookeepers do think that there's a similar type of metabolic syndrome that's going on with a lot of these zoo animals. So it, um, clearly gorillas do not eat uh, wheat, corn, and soy made into processed pet food bars, even if they are fortified with vitamins. Mm-hmm. So they switch, they switch these gorillas over to leafy stems and things close to what they might eat in the wild. Clearly, they weren't shipping plants from Africa. And all these health problems go away. They lose uh, 50 pounds. Um, they, they stop regurgitating their food all the time. They stop plucking their hair. Um, the progression of heart disease uh, stops. So it, it, um, it, it's in, in some ways, zoos have been leading the way. Um, in advance of human medicine, they've been leading the way at starting to treat chronic health problems through lifestyle. Hmm. Interesting. So what, what did they do for those gorillas? I mean, you said that they were feeding them corn and soy. Were, did they, they started feeding them more a more natural diet and they had actually, they stopped doing things like regurgitating their food and plucking out their hair, which would seem to be more mental issues, not just physical and, all, and their heart health also improved. It, it, it's all tied together. I mean, mm-hmm. we're realizing that a lot of mental health problems are closely related to physical health from vitamin D levels to chronic and infections to um, exercise and things like that. So um, it, it's no surprise to me that a change in diet or lifestyle could, in, could influence uh, mm-hmm. mental health. Um, yeah, so, so they um, most, most zoos uh, have fed, over the last 20, 30 years, have, have fed these uh, gorilla biscuits to the gorillas. And, and, you know, they understand, the zoos and the zookeepers understand that gorillas in the wild are not eating gorilla biscuits. What, what they're doing, though, um, the trade-off that, that they had been making is that if you look back at zoos over the last 100, 200 years, the foods that were fed gorillas were even worse. I mean, they would feed them meat because they didn't realize that gorillas were herbivores or herbivores plus insects. Um, they, they'd look at their teeth and, and you know, this image of, of uh, King Kong uh, would come to mind. And, oh, of course, these ruthless, aggressive animals must eat meat. But they don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and uh, 
and, and so you look at old zoo records from, from back in the day, and, and the, they were feeding bread to these animals and alcohol as a treat and candy, and just it's just, it boggles the mind today. Yeah. Um, so these Gorilla Biscuits were an improvement on what happened before and uh, and were fortified with vitamins and nutrients, but then now you're they're taking it a step forward. Right. You know, John, some people who I talk to about paleo would probably be incredulous that, you know, paleo is really that powerful. You know, I've had some health improvements, but they say, well, people are living longer than ever. And of course, they have to die of something. So heart disease, if it's the number one killer, so what? You, you're going to die and we keep living longer. Why Why would you think that improving your diet to a, to a more uh, ancestral diet would help? What, what do you say to that? Well, look, if, if, if people are fine with their health, how they're currently eating and how they're currently living, who am I to tell them to do otherwise? Mm. So if, if people are fine and they like what they're doing, God bless you. Keep doing it. Um, and, and we don't all have to eat the same diet. We don't all have to figure out. There's no one size fits all for everyone. That's fine. Um, however, if somebody has a health problem that they're trying to address, maybe it's a digestive issue, maybe it's infertility, maybe it's depression, then paleo is a, a smart thing to experiment with. So just try and see if it works and, and let that be the measure of whether you keep doing it or not, whether it delivers functional benefits for you. Um, and and as you know, I, I've found as I've done paleo over the years, it's morphed, it's changed. It's not... Um, I'm not eating the exact same way that I did when I first started paleo. I've, I've experimented with different foods. I've found that, um, for example, I've, I, I do fine with a certain amount of full fat dairy. Um, it's nutrient dense. I like it. Um, and so I incorporate it into my diet. I, I'll have some heavy cream or sour cream or grass fed butter or a little bit of uh, no sugar added yogurt or something like that. Not, not every day necessarily, but... Uh, um, on, on a fairly regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, at, at the end of the day, you have to experiment and see what works for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that idea that you have to experiment. And But, you know, sometimes experimenting can be tough and it helps to have a template such as something like the paleo diet to look at. And when reading your book, I, I, was, I really liked how you had a very flexible approach to eating. And one thing that you mentioned is that fermented grains might be okay, dairy might be okay, and white potatoes. Tell me a little bit about how your paleo diet has evolved to include some of those foods. Yeah, it um, sometimes people refer to paleo 1.0, 2.0, or maybe, I don't know, maybe we're on 3.0. I don't know. It, uh -huh. Things are, are, are changing quickly. Um, you know, the hunter-gatherers uh, are opportunistic omnivores. They eat plants, animals, different parts of the animal, insects, amphibians, birds, eggs, honey, uh, roots and tubers, all sorts of stuff. Um, and, and, and so I think it's, it's okay to maintain that, that, uh, that mentality of being opportunistic about, about certain foods. Um, what were the ones you mentioned? Uh, <laughs> white for, potatoes. Well, what, for, for example, white potatoes, you know, when I originally started the paleo diet, I had read Lauren Cardane's book and he specifically forbid white potatoes and things like dairy and even fermented. Well, he says, of course, no grains. Right. And, but, but I, I'm, I saw in your book that, you know, uh, white potatoes might be okay and, and dairy and then later on in the book I read that fermented grains might even be okay well I, I um, we first off with fermentation um, there's been a lot of cultural evolution over the last 10,000 years where different 
uh, societies around the world have harnessed the power of fermentation to make foods healthier. Um, it's it's so traditional forms of food processing are can be can be fabulous. And mm. and if, if if you do enjoy grains and they aren't certain grains and they aren't causing the same types of problems for you that they that they may for somebody else, then fermentation can be can be a good way to minimize the negatives and um, and maximize the, the the positives. So um, it, most most more people are talking about probiotics and gut health and the gut microbiome and mm-hmm. and and the role of microorganisms in health and and fermented foods can be a great way to get some live cultures into your diet. I uh, Michael Pollan came out with his most recent book in April mm-hmm. and uh, it's called Cooked. And, and the fourth chapter or the fourth part of the book is on fermentation, and it's really wonderful. Um, the other three parts are good too, but everyone has sort of agreed that that, that the fourth part on fermentation really shines. And uh, and I, I, I think it would be I think it'd be silly to um, to, to completely uh, to completely ignore uh, you know the the tradition of of fermentation. Mm-hmm. So are fermented grains something that you included in your diet? You know I I. I, I don't include them in my diet, partially because these days I've been so busy with getting this book done and working on the release that I haven't had time to really ferment a lot of stuff and, and I haven't even been able to cook as much as I usually like to. Mm-hmm. Um, I also find some of the traditional uh, grain, uh, some of the traditional practices surrounding grains that a lot of people do in Weston Price and things like that, I, I find it to be very time consuming, mm-hmm. soaking and sprouting and, and fermenting in those things so at this point in my life it's not something it's not something that I do and and those foods the the grains in particular aren't something that I miss so I don't I don't include them Um, but um, I, I sort of wanted to take a big tent approach with my view and, and didn't want to, you know, it, it, the notion that there's one true way of eating a paleolithic diet, that's not going to hold up over time. Just if, if people haven't realized that yet. Um, and, and, and so I'd, I'd rather be a little bit more inclusive and not, and not try to say, well, oh, you're eating white potatoes. You're not paleo or, or stuff like that. Um, I think that can get a little bit silly. I, I think this orthodox view of a paleolithic diet and eating the right types of food groups is a great starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, not not everybody has has to end there. Yeah. So. Um, what was the other? Oh, well, John, t- I think our listeners would be really interested to hear a little bit about what you eat on a daily basis. Kind of run run me through what your daily life is like as far as your eating schedule. Yeah, so um, I usually don't eat breakfast. Um, I, I wake up, um, I, I'm not feeling too hungry. I'll have a cup of coffee, maybe with some heavy cream or a little bit of grass-fed butter in it. Um, and I will work until um, early afternoon, maybe 1 o'clock before I'm really eating something. Okay, John, let me stop you right there because I've heard I've heard a lot about this, but even some people in the paleo diet, not everyone's heard of intermittent fasting. That's kind of sounds like what you're doing in the morning. T- tell me a little bit about the advantage to that. Well, uh, fast people these days eat so consistently. They're grazers, you know, lots of snacking and small meals consistently throughout the day. And the, the sort of superficial rationale has been to eat lots of meals to keep your blood sugar up. Um, but 
Look, um, the eating frequency, an appropriate eating frequency sort of depends on what species you are. So if you're a gorilla, like the gorillas at the Cleveland Zoo, they need to eat all day. They are grazers. They, they do nibble on plants all day long, and that's what they're adapted to do. But if you're a lion, if you're a carnivore, then, then these guys are often eating once every two or three days or, mm. or even four days. Um, and we need to start realizing that these periods of not eating or periods of hunger can be healthy for you. They can be good for you, just like being exposed to uh, going on a run, from stressors from going on a run or, or working out or being exposed to the cold or, or, or heat or things like that. All these different types of stressors can, can result in healthier benefits. And the same is true of being hungry. So, so some of the benefits of intermittent fasting are um, you can help break sort of a sugar addiction and start helping your body shift to more of a fat-based metabolism and learn to utilize the fat on your own body more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it also initiates a, a process called um, autophagy. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Lots of uh, terms that you read and write a lot, but but don't say a lot in, in standard conversation. Um, right. uh, where it, it's a recycling process in the cell where when uh, protein is uh, scarce, uh, cells, in, instead of going through mitosis and dividing a lot, will uh, recycular, recycle uh, cellular debris um, in the cell. And so it's a way of, of, of uh, repairing chromosomal damage and, um, and, and repairing damage to the cell. There have been interesting applications and discussions of of intermittent fasting and increased longevity. Um, Intermittent fasting is a way to deal with chronic infections. So, and and then you look at all these cultures around the world, whether it's uh, Buddhism or Judaism or Catholicism or um, uh, different fasting traditions among American Indians. And you just see this this practice of intermittent fasting um, bubble up pretty much everywhere. And and so uh, in, in my own life, uh, I, I try to, you know, maybe once every week and a half or so, I try to go a full uh, 24 hours uh, without eating. And on a fairly regular basis, I'll go 16, 16 to 18 hours uh, without eating. Not, not necessarily every day, but, um, you know, you have a late lunch and, and you eat before the sun goes down and, and you're doing that without even realizing it. Okay. So you're doing that in the morning and, and uh, you're experiencing some health benefits from that. Then you said you start your lunch or or your first meal around one o'clock what do you have for that yeah i i mean i'll i'll go get some sushi um and some seaweed salad or i'll go to chipotle and get one of their salads just with uh with the peppers and onions and guacamole some meat and some sour cream um or uh, I'll get a cob salad or something like that. So some sort of veggie with a little bit of meat on the side. Um, I'll do that. Um, and, and then dinner is, is sort of more of a traditional dinner where I'll probably have a side salad, a vegetable that I've cooked and, and some sort of meat or fish. Okay. Um, and but sometimes in the morning, um, I enjoy, I'll, I'll have a, a small bowl of heavy cream with a banana cut up in it or um, my go-to snack or meal replacement if I don't have time and I need to eat something is a, a can of sardines or a can of mackerel. Okay. I love that. I love that stuff. It's, it's, it's brain food. It's really good. You get a okay. ton of omega-6s, you get some protein, um, some fat. I, I, I'm sort of moderately low carbohydrate, um, but not extremely low. And so, um, 
mackerel and sardines are, are just fabulous. Okay. Um, it doesn't sound like you eat a lot of carbs there. How does that work with your running? Have you found it to be just fine? It, yeah, it, it depends. I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not doing uh, super long runs. I mean, my, my runs are anywhere from three to six miles, so I'm not doing uh, marathons or ultra marathons or anything like that. Um, and, uh, and, and so it's, it's the level of carbohydrate that I'm eating. I just calibrate for, for how active I am. Um, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at staying in sort of an aerobic mode when I'm running or barefoot running, um, where, where I'm still in fat burning mode and not switching over to anaerobic and going through tons of glycogen, um, you know, depleting those, those stores. So, um, you know, I, you know, I, I, I usually will have like a sweet potato or, um, I found a potato chip vendor that doesn't cook in cola oil. So sometimes I'll, I'll have a few of those. Um, oh, or, that, that, you got to tell me what that is because I, I love potato chips, but I haven't had them for a long time. Who's I was out? just, I was just at the ancestral health symposium. Oh shoot. I don't have the name on me right now. Um, okay. I'll, I'll get you the name and you can, uh, you can post it in the notes of your show. And, and those are cooked in like uh, lard or something like that? Um, coconut oil. Coconut okay. oil. And we also had one from a, another place that were cooked lard and just fabulous. I, I was a very, very happy paleo boy. Okay. I'll put up a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. So you mentioned there that you do some barefoot running. Um, how important is that to you in your exercise program? And uh, just tell me more about how you get into that. Was that before you went paleo or, or was that part of the whole package? It was part of the whole package. It was a little after, uh, maybe a year after I had started eating this way um, or maybe even two. And I had a knee issue when I would go running and conventional shoes. And after about a mile, I would have to pull up lane. And this was very frustrating to me because I thought I'm, you know, I'm 25 years old or whatever. I should not be pulling up lane after one mile of running. Um, and I came, I came across five room, five fingers and that whole thing started going barefoot, changed to a gentle four foot strike, uh, with my running stride and the knee issue. Went away. And then I, I actually just found that I enjoyed the, the sensation of barefoot running, particularly mm-hmm. trail running, um, more than just jogging in conventional shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was just, I was out in California, in Santa Cruz, um, visiting the, you know, the uh, CrossFit, and I was was running a a trail that they have out back. Um, sort of, <laughs> they aren't big runners there, but um, I, they had a. There's this beautiful trail out out behind their headquarters, and and you know, have you seen Last of Mohicans? Yep. Yeah. It, like I I don't need headphones when I'm barefoot running because Last of Mohicans is playing in my head. <laughs> Um, and I, I, it's just so, it's, it's so mentally stimulating and it feels like more of a skill than just brute conditioning. You know, I, I, I really don't like, um, if people are putting in headphones or watching TV or things like that, it means that whatever they're doing isn't sufficiently mentally stimulating and, and it's not challenging. It's, it's not challenging the brain in any way. Um, and, and, and so it probably means people are just there trying to burn calories. And right. that's not that's not really my style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John. Um, one of the one of the interesting parts of the book that I found uh, towards the, some of one of the end chapters was uh, you actually decided to 
take on this idea of actually hunting an animal yourself and going out and experiencing the whole thing, gutting it and all that. T- tell my uh, our listeners a little bit about what that was like and and uh, have you have you been out hunting since? It uh, the first time you go hunting is quite an experience. It it can be challenging though for people who might like to learn how to hunt to actually figure out how to go do it because so much hunting knowledge traditionally has been passed through um, male relatives. And so if you didn't have an uncle or a grandfather uh, to teach you how to hunt, then you were out of luck. Um, and, and in my case, my neither of my grandfathers were hunters, so it just the information never got passed down. It, it, you know, in a in a parallel way on in the female line, it used to be that um, knowledge of, of midwifery um, and and childbearing was was passed down informally, informal knowledge passed down through women. And then once once you start getting hospitals and hospital based childbirth, that whole that whole uh, um, legacy breaks down as well. So it, it's it's sort of odd how modernity has has started to um it has caused a lot of this traditional wisdom in, in the male and female domain to disappear but um i got a great book uh, to learn how to deer hunt by a guy named jackson landers and called the, the the beginner's guide to hunting deer for food it's excellent i highly recommend it it's very clear um great charts and diagrams and, and that was a good way to just familiarize myself with what was necessary what was required um you, you can't read the book and go out and be um, just be an expert hunter, um, but it's a good place to start. And then um, I, I went to a, a seminar that this guy Jackson Landers was putting on, and, and we got to gut and field dress a deer that had already been shot. Um, so I was able to go through that process a little bit. And then you need to find some sort of friend and ask around uh, who who is a hunter and, and say, hey, can I just come with you in September or October or whenever hunting season opens where you are? Um, and most hunters, I've never met a hunter that wasn't welcoming of someone who wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. And um, and find that person. They will help you figure out the right gear. Um, they, will, they will help you navigate... Uh, uh, some of the licensing stuff, um, and and so I went I went on a hunt in Michigan about two years ago um, with a, a family friend and a, a group of guys and his family always gets together um, every year uh, when when deer season opens. We call it uh, deer camp, and uh, and they set me up, and on my first day I I did end up shooting my first deer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can read. I, I'm not going to sort of go through and describe it. You can re- read about it in the book. It's um, it's probably a little more poetic in the book than it is here. But it, well, tell me a little bit about what, what that. I mean, was I I started bow hunting about three years ago, and I remember the first time I shot the deer. It was just such a kind of a, a, a rush. Not like oh, I'm so glad I killed the deer, but the, it was like Huge this is so rush. yeah adrenaline. Like the, I'm feeding my family by by hunting my own food. There was just something really primal and cool about that. Did you have that experience? I did. I absolutely did. And um, it's amazing how your your senses come alive mm-hmm. when you're hunting, when, when you have to pay attention to your scent and you have to pay attention to the wind. And we are so visual, but deer are more scent oriented and noise oriented. So you have to pay attention to sound. And and so you're, you're, everything becomes sensitized. And then you, there's a lot of waiting. I, I think a lot of non-hunters, they, they kind of envision hunting as if it were Big Buck Hunter, the video game. And there's all this shooting. Mm-hmm. It, 
Hunting is closer to bird watching than it is to paintball. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so there's a lot of sort of peaceful moments, highly sensitized in nature. And then, boom, you see an animal. Mm-hmm. You freeze and you're wondering if, if it's seen you. And then you've got, you know, you've got to get your gun or your bow into place. And, and then uh, it, it, your heart is just pounding in your head and in your ear. And your heart, people, a lot of hunters have made this observation. People think that their heart is beating so loud that the animal will be able to hear it. Like right. how how can you not hear my heart beating? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 then if if you're shooting a gun, the noise is so loud and you're going to get kickback that you, that you suddenly go from complete peacefulness to the you know this big boom that shocks you as well. And then there's a moment where you're not quite sure whether you hit the animal or not. Did you hit it? Was it a clean shot? You know, and uh, I, I happened to drop the deer that I shot um, immediately and about died and probably about two seconds later it was through the spine, um, through the spinal cord. So um, yeah. it's, it's intense. It's, yep. it's extremely intense. But what I, what I like about it so much is rather than trying to disengage from where our food comes from, it's, it's, it's engaging and, and, um, and re-entering the food chain rather, rather than the, the, it's impossible to remove ourselves from the planet. Right. From having an impact on the planet, um, it, 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 we can try as we might to, to try to forget where our food comes from, but we can never actually remove our footprint from the earth. And 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 so I, I think it's very important to to not pretend that we can do that, mm-hmm. um, and to actually re-engage with the food system and look it in the eye. Yeah. Um, so I, I found it to be a very very powerful experience. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm not the I'm not the first one to write about this. I mean, a lot of people have written about their first hunting experiences. So I'm I'm not pretending that I. Uh, it had some great insight that other people didn't have as well. Right, right. You know, I like how your book incorporates the whole lifestyle, the whole paleo lifestyle. And and one thing you mentioned is um, paleo for not paleo, but the but the idea of like a standing desk for work. And I'm kind of interested in someone who's a writer like yourself. How does your creative process work, and is it tied into the paleo lifestyle at all? I mean, are you are you standing while you write? Do you I'm, do, I'm, do intermittent writing? Aaron, Aaron, I'm standing right now. Oh, nice. <laughs> Standing for the interview. Okay. Well, what I've found is sometimes people will, uh, there have been some papers published recently about how sitting uh, sitting can kill you and, and all these metabolic processes that shut down, how you stop burning as many calories. To be honest, that's not really what motivates me to stand up. Mm-hmm. I stand up. I try to stand up when I work. I don't do it all the time, but um, because I feel more assertive, I feel more active, I feel more awake, um, and I definitely feel more creative. I just feel more in the moment and doing what I'm doing than if I'm hunched over on the couch, falling asleep, um, you know, lying there in, practically in the fetal position. <laughs> Right, right. So, so if if you, I've got a, I've got a sidebar in my book on, um, on authors, famous authors throughout history who have written standing up, and it's it's actually really remarkable. Um, everyone from Vladimir Nabokov uh, to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the poet, to Charles Dickens. Um, uh, oh shoot, the sun also rises. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. Dear Lord, uh, Hemingway. Hemingway would take his typewriter and just put it on the top of a bookshelf, and he would stand on a on the uh, skin of a kudu, which is sort of like an antelope in Africa. He would he would stand on the skin of a kudu that he had shot um, uh-huh. himself. So that's uh, 
with the locavore furniture. So are, are you standing on an animal skin right now? I, I am not. I am not. I figure if I'm going to stand on an a- animal skin, I better I better shoot it myself. So right. um, I, I don't want, I don't have one. <laughs> you know, lastly, uh, I'd like to bring up this idea of politics. You know, I've, I've read a lot of Stephen Pinker, and I know you draw some inspiration from him. And it seems like a lot of people in the paleo movement are kind of uh, leaning towards the libertarian slant. Is that is there a connection there? What have you found? Well, uh, first of all, Steve is not doesn't eat paleo, and and uh, um, and so I, he's he's not a part of the movement in that regard. Um, mm-hmm. I do think you're right that there there does seem to be a strong libertarian streak um, in um, in paleo CrossFit circles. Um, I, I don't. But but they're all all different types of people, you know. Eating eating a uh, a healthy diet is, is um, isn't a part of doesn't have to be a part of someone's political ideology. Um, what I do I do think there are some factors at play though. First of all, the food movement to date, particularly the plant based diet crowd, vegetarian vegetarianism and veganism, is explicitly political and it's it's heavily liberal. So I, I think some people who aren't um, who don't quite identify with that entire set of beliefs or ideology feels a little bit alienated from aspects of, say, veganism or vegetarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I think is, is great about the rise of paleo is that it offers another path to conscious eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that's one factor is, is that the food movement was already politicized in, in one direction. Um, and you know, a lot of a lot of libertarians are appreciative of this concept called spontaneous order, or how you can have an intelligent outcome or intelligent system, even if someone didn't explicitly plan it. There's no central planner or central designer, and and libertarians often point to that in terms of economic the economy. Um, but you can also look at biology and something like the human body as this brilliant product of evolution by natural selection. And there was no central designer, there was no central planner, um, but you can still get outcomes that are very intelligent and um, and beautiful and incredible. So I think there's a little bit of an intellectual affinity um, there. But, um, you know, I have met, um, I've met all different stripes of people from uh, anarchists to socialists to communists to conservatives to moderates to independents to people who hate all politics um, and uh, and 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 that's fine. And that's good. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, John, you know, I really enjoyed your book. It's it's really got this inclusive approach, and you look at a lot of different aspects of life. Um, but where can people go to find out more about you and to buy the book? What's what's the best way to follow you? Well, the the book is on sale uh, in stores wherever books are sold. Uh, it's it's also online. It's Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Apple, iTunes, Google Books, other options too. Um, I blog at Hunter Gatherer dot com um, and there will also be links to uh, to find the book there and if if people do pass through New York City um, then they should on my blog I have some links to resources uh, that that they can download if if they want to come barefoot running in Central Park with a group of us or find primal paleo restaurants in New York um, there there are a lot of resources there so uh, there lots to choose from oh great well John it's been a pleasure speaking with you today thanks so much for being part of the show. All right. Thank you, Aaron. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.